Chapter 10 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sim. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 10. Conquest of the Asiatic Greeks by the Lydians and the Persians. 560-493. Characteristic of Ionian political history. It is a strange yet characteristic fact that the growth of the brilliant Ionian culture reviewed in the preceding chapters was accompanied, as cause and effect, by continued wars among the states which produced this splendid, versatile life, and by fiercer factional struggles within the individual cities. One example of internal conflict will suffice. In Malaysian territory, the tillers of the soil were Gurgathay, a class of serfs who rebelled against their lords and gaining the upper hand but momentarily collected the young children of their masters on threshing floors and crushed them under the hoofs of oxen. Regaining control, the lords smeared the captive Gurgathay with pitch and burned them alive. So deadly was the antipathy of classes. Everywhere the primitive kingship had passed away. In some states aristocracy survived, in others democracy had gained the upper hand but in the general internal weakness the republics were giving way, one after another to tyranny, civil discord and interstate warfare, while stimulating the mind to intense productivity, rendered the Asiatic Greeks wholly unfit to defend themselves against foreign aggression, Lydia and the Anatolian Greeks. The need of united action increased with the growth of Lydia in the interior of Asia Minor, to a strong aggressive power under King Gygus, about 660. That country was rich in gold, and the inhabitants, by manufacturing and by overland trade with Asia, had accumulated great wealth. The delicacies of their life, however, afforded little hindrance to the policy of conquest adopted by Gygas. It was probably in resistance to Lydian aggression that twelve cities of Ionia joined in a league, whose centre was the Panionian, a shrine of Poseidon on the promontory of Mycale. In a spirit of exclusiveness, they styled themselves groundlessly the only true Ionians and would admit no other states to their union. The Aeolians and the Dorians of Asia Minor formed similar leagues, but the idea of inviting all the Asiatic Greeks under a single government seems to have occurred to no one. On critical occasions, the deputies of the allied Ionian states met at the Panionian to deliberate on the common welfare but the central government possessed no means of enforcing harmonious or efficient action. Lydian conquest of the Greeks. Under these circumstances, Gygus succeeded in taking Colophon, one of their cities. The conquest was completed by Croesus, a later king, about 560-546, to 546, who incorporated the Greeks of the Asiatic coast in his realm. Miletus alone, which had taken no part in the resistance, remained an ally under treaty. In far earlier times the Lydians had given the Greeks their useful arts and were now adopting the Hellenic culture. Though differing in language, the two peoples were coming therefore to possess essentially the same civilization and were closely allied in commercial and social intercourse. Croesus made the burden of his tribute on the Greeks light and favoured their shrines with rich votive offerings. Under him, Lydia reached the height of her prosperity and attained to the magnitude of an empire. To the tributes which poured in from all the peoples west of the Halis River was added a rich gold revenue from the sands of the Pactolus. Relying on his material resources, 
the prosperous king made ready to contend with the persian empire newly arisen on his eastern border the assyrian empire to 606 from about the beginning of the middle age the great power of asia had been assyria early in the seventh century she had conquered egypt after this event her empire extended from above memphis on the nile nearly to the caspian sea and from the persian gulf to the black sea this was the first conquering state to follow a systematic policy of organization she divided her subject territories into provinces satrapies each under a governor or satrap appointed by the assyrian king the functions of the satrap were military judicial and general administrative including a supervision of the tributes under him were native kings who enjoyed far less freedom than had been possible in earlier and more loosely organised empires. It was also the policy of the central government to transplant great numbers of the newly conquered from one part of the empire to another, with a view to uprooting local patriotism and of making the subject peoples more dependent. A state so thoroughly predatory in its aims is doomed sooner or later to decay. Thus it happened that in 606, the Assyrian capital Nineveh was taken by a combination of the highly civilized Babylonians with the Medes, a fresh, virile Indo-European people. The Median and the Persian empires, 605 to 546. Thence arose two empires, the Babylonian on the south of Hizr Asia and the Median in the north. The latter included Persia and by rapid conquest extended its western border to the Halys River. With this boundary, the Medes might have been satisfied, but suddenly, 550, their king was overthrown by an uprising of the Persians under Cyrus. This revolution, making the Median Empire Persian, placed in control a still more vigorous, aggressive Indo-European race of mountaineers under a leader of extraordinary genius and ambition. Cyrus defeated Croesus in two battles, seized Sardis, his capital, and took the proud king captive. Lydia became a part of the Persian Empire, 546. The Persian conquest of the Anatolian Greeks, 546 to 538. The Aeolians and Ionians were loath to exchange their benevolent king for the new Persian conqueror. Having treated his messengers coldly at the beginning of the war, they now sought from him the same terms of subjection as they had received from Croesus. He refused whereupon they began to wall their towns, and calling a council at the Panionian, the Ionians resolved to ask the aid of Sparta, now the strongest power in Greece. The Lacedaemonians could not think of so distant an enterprise. It is said, however, that they sent an embassy to warn Cyrus at his peril not to harm any city of Hellas. The Persian king treated the message with contempt. Arpagus, his lieutenant, entrusted with the work of conquering the Greeks, laid siege to their cities one by one and captured them. Unwilling to submit, the Phaeacians sailed away in a body to find a colony in Corsica. In like manner, the people of Teos, abandoning their city, founded Abdera in Thrace. The rest of the Ionians, with the exception of the Malaysians, who had allied themselves with Cyrus, submitted, and most of the neighbouring islands followed their example. Gradually, all Asia Minor was conquered and incorporated in the Persian Empire. Meantime, after conquering Babylon, Cyrus met death in battle with the barbarians on his northeastern frontier. Darius, 521-485 Organisation of the Empire 
During the reign of Cambyses, son and successor of Cyrus 529-522, the Persians made no great extension of their territory to the west, but directed themselves mainly to the acquisition of Egypt. Cambyses died by a self-inflicted wound, and after a brief interval, Darius, a distant relative, came to the throne. This king is famous chiefly for his organisation of the empire. Enlarging on a policy begun by Cyrus, he divided the entire area, excepting Persia, into 20 large satrapies. The Persian satrap had essentially the same functions as the Assyrian officer of that title had formerly exercised. Naturally, the king interfered at will in all local affairs. A necessary element of control is to be found in the splendid system of well-kept roads, which Darius built from his capital Susa to all important points on the frontier. The king's eye, a near relative of the sovereign invested with great dignity and military power, served as a royal inspector. Not only the roads, but also an excellent system of gold and silver coins favoured the growth of commerce. At the same time, Darius took great pains to preserve internal peace and protect his empire from invasion. The government was less predatory in aim than that of Assyria, and we find in Darius a rare benevolence towards his subjects. The place of the Greeks in the empire. All the Greeks on the Aegean coast of Asia Minor, together with some neighbouring peoples, constituted the Ionian satrapy. It was placed under an officer who, from his capital Sardis, governed also the Lydian satrapy. The Asiatic Greeks paid tribute to the Persian king, as they formerly had to Croesus. In addition, they were required to perform military and naval service. The conqueror did not interfere with their religion or their habits of life or their city organisations, but everywhere set up tyrants devoted to himself. The Greeks, however, were no longer the favoured people of their king. In fact, no cultural or religious sympathies were possible between Hellenes and Persians, a far less civilised people, whose religion knew no images or gay festivities, but consisted in an internal warfare between good and evil. Greeks, too, were humiliated by their insignificant place in a gigantic empire, which embraced the East Mediterranean countries and extended into India and Central Asia. Their land forces marched with the motley army of Asiatics, and their fleets were arrayed with those of Phoenicia and Egypt under offices of the king. Their new position gave them internal peace, protection from enemies and the advantage of commerce with the Orient by land and sea, but irritated their pride and repressed their genius, which could only thrive in freedom. Invasion of Europe by Darius, about 513. The empire was exposed on the northwestern frontier to the raids of the nomad Scythians, who occupied the region north of the Black Sea. After trying in vain to check the inroads, Darius seems to have conceived the idea of attacking these restless enemies in their rear from the European side, and perhaps of conquering them in a return march through their country. If so, he must have greatly underrated the difficulties of the expedition. However that may be, he led a great army across the Bosphorus on a bridge of boats prepared for by a Samian architect. Thence he marched to the Danube, which he crossed on a similar bridge made from the fleets of the Ionian tyrants. As the Scythians would not meet Darius in open battle, but harassed his army interminably, 
and as provisions and water were insufficient, the invasion of Scythia ended in disaster. With great loss, Darius retreated into Asia. One of his generals, however, Magabazus, left behind with 80,000 men, conquered the Thracian coast from the Propontis to the Strymon River. Relations between Persia and Athens the positive result of the Scythian expedition was accordingly the conquest by Darius of a part of European Hellas. There could be no doubt that the Persians, following their usual policy, would endeavour to continually to push their boundary forward in this direction. The people of the Greek mainland, who most sensitively felt the approaching danger, were the Athenians, for their two colonies in the Hellespontic region, Sigium and Chersonaeus were now lost to them through Persian aggression. They knew too that their exiled tyrant Hippias, now at Sigium, but hoping to be restored through Persian aid, was doing his utmost to persuade Artaphernes, satrap of Sardis, to an expedition against Athens, when some years earlier the Athenians had expelled their tyrant and had restored a republican form of government, they were assailed by the Peloponnesians. Under these circumstances, they had sent ambassadors to Sardis to seek an alliance with Persia. Artaphernes expressed his willingness on condition of their giving Darius earth and water, the tokens of submission. They agreed, but on returning home, they were severely censored and their promise was repudiated. Hearing now of the machinations of Hippias, they sent a second embassy, to counteract his influence. Artaphernes abruptly ordered them to receive Hippias back if they wished to escape ruin. Thereupon the Athenians, who had no idea of accepting the proposal, felt that a state of war existed between them and Persia. Causes of the Ionic Revolt Aristogras at Sparta No long time afterward Aristogras, tyrant of Miletus, took advantage of party strife in Naxos to attempt the conquest of that island by holding out great promises, he enlisted the aid of Artaphernes. The enterprise failed, and the tyrant could only expect the severest punishment for his broken word. His sole way of escape led through revolt. To him it was clear that the Asiatic Greeks were chafing under Persian rule, and ready on the slightest pretext for liberty. Hecateus, the historian and geographer, warned them of the overwhelming superiority of Persia. They paid him no heed but readily followed Aristogras in revolt. The Ionic Revolt, 499-494, Aristogras at Sparta. Abdicating his tyranny and accepting a constitutional office, Aristogras proceeded to overthrow the despots in the remaining Ionic cities. All Ionia was soon free from tyranny and committed to a hopeless rebellion. Aristogras went personally to Lacedaemon to ask for an alliance. Herodotus represents him as appealing to King Cleomenes in the following terms, that the sons of the Ionians should be slaves instead of free is a reproach, and grief most of all indeed to ourselves, but of all others most to you, inasmuch as ye are the leaders of Hellas. Now therefore I entreat you by gods of Hellas to rescue from slavery the Ionians, who are your own kinsmen, and ye may easily achieve this thing, for the barbarians are not brave in fight, whereas ye have attained to the highest point of valour in war. Furthermore, their fighting is with bows and arrows and a short spear, and they go into battle wearing trousers. For this reason, they are easily conquered. Then in detail, he pointed out on the map he had brought with him the road from the Ionian coast to Susa, and described the wealth that would fall to the conqueror. Cleomenes, an ambitious king, 
seems to have been personally favourable to the undertaking, but the Lacedaemonians could not think of so distant an expedition. The arguments and bribes of the smooth Ionian were accordingly rejected. Aristogras at Athens. Thereupon Aristogras went to Athens where he found conditions more favourable to himself. Losses of territory and the threats of Artaphernes had stirred the Athenians to anger. Furthermore, the men who supported the reforms of Cleisthenes, who hated tyranny and stood loyally for the independence of the city, forming what we may describe as the Republican Party, were willing to try the issue of war with Persia. It was better to fight at a distance and with allies than to bear alone the shock of inevitable invasion. Their kinship and commercial relations with Ionia led them in the same direction. They resolved therefore to send twenty ships which were reinforced by two from Eritrea. Looking upon the war as a foolhardy undertaking, Herodotus bitterly complains that it was easier for Aristogras to deceive 30,000 Athenians than one Spartan and that the ships dispatched to the war proved to be the beginning of evils for the Hellens and the Barbarians. The Burning of Sardis 498 The crews of these vessels joined with the Ionians in an attack on Sardis. They burned the city, but failing to take the citadel, they were forced to retreat. On their way to the coast, they were overtaken and defeated by the Persians at Ephesus. Thereupon the Athenians returned home and would have nothing more to do with the war. This conduct proves not fickleness of purpose, but the defective character of the popular assembly as an instrument for the management of foreign relations. The friends of Hippias were always numerous and the change of a few timid votes from the Republican to the Tyrannist party was sufficient to give the latter the control. As the Republicans were ready for war, the Tyrannists were eager for peace. The defeat at Laid, 497, its effect on Athens. The burning of Sardis encouraged the revolt, which rapidly spread to all Western Asia Minor, Thrace and Cyprus. At the same time, it roused Darius to extraordinary efforts for the suppression of the rebellion. The decisive battle was fought off Laid near Miletus, between the Greek and Phoenician fleets, 353 against 600 ships, according to Herodotus. Shirking the drill necessary to efficient action, the Greeks preferred to waste their time in the shade. Discipline and united action were therefore impossible. Many Greeks listened to secret overtures from their exiled tyrant, now with the enemy, and the result was inevitably utter ruin. If this battle was fought in 497, we can understand the feeling which the news of defeat excited at Athens. Reconciliation with Persia seemed a necessity. The Tyrannist party was so strengthened that it elected to the archonship for 496 Hipparchus, a kinsman of Hippias. This was a step towards recalling the tyrant. Siege of Miletus, 494. Meantime, the Persians had laid close blockade to Miletus. After a long siege, they captured and sacked the city. After killing most of the men, they transplanted the rest of the population, in Asiatic style, to the mouth of the Tigris. In another year, the entire rebellion was suppressed. In many instances, cities were plundered and destroyed, and the remnants of the population carried into captivity. Significance of the Fall of Miletus It would be difficult to overrate the significance of these events. For centuries, the Ionians had been the standard bearers of the world's civilization. Miletus, the home of commerce and industry, and of the fine arts of poetry and science, the most brilliant city in Hellas, was blotted out of existence. Since the decay of the Minoan civilization, 
human progress had not experienced so severe a blow. Fortunately, however, other minds and hands were ready to take up the thought and skill of Ionia and to carry it to a far higher reach of perfection. Effect of the event on Athens it is worthwhile for us to notice how sensitive was the political atmosphere of Athens to the happenings across the sea. When Phrynichus had composed a drama called The Capture of Miletus and had put it on the stage, the spectators fell to weeping and the Athenians fined the poet a thousand drachmas on the ground that he had reminded them of their own misfortunes and they ordered that in future no one should present this drama. To them heretofore the thought of submission to Persia had meant no more than tyranny and the payment in tribute. The poet made them vividly see the horrors which attended the Persian triumph over a city of kindred blood, and which surely impended over themselves. They would have no more tyrannous politics. In this frame of mind they elected to the Archon ship for 493-2, to an uncompromising advocate of war for the defence of the Republic, a man of marvellous energy and mental resources, Themistocles. Themistocles Archon 493-2, he belonged to the gens of the Lycomidae, highly reverenced for its priestly functions, though hitherto without political importance. His father, Neocles, was probably a merchant, and Themistocles was himself accounted a keen man of business. An obstacle in his way was the circumstance that he laid out for himself a political path which coincided with the aims of neither the Tyrannists nor the Republicans, the two great parties of the time. His support came from mercantile class, who were in a better position than others to appreciate his aims, and from the masses in whose hearts his patriotism awakened a responsive echo. For the control of the sea, Piraeus. At this early date he seems to have understood the weak point in any effort of Persia to conquer Greece. The country was too barren to feed an invading army large enough to crush the liberty-loving inhabitants. It would be essential therefore to the Persian king's success to keep control of the sea in order to supply his army with provisions. Themistocles saw the practicability of building a Hellenic fleet large enough to gain the supremacy of the sea. Thus Hellas would be saved and his own city raised to a towering preeminence. His year of office he devoted accordingly to improving the three natural harbours of Piraeus as a home for the great Athenian fleet of which he dreamed. He was in fact the first to call attention to the advantages of Piraeus over the open roadstead of the Phalarium with which Athenian merchants had thus far satisfied themselves. His far-reaching vision was all the more remarkable from the circumstance that during his official year the Persians were actually attempting an invasion of Greece by way of Thrace and Macedon. End of chapter 10